If you're here for the first time, I want to greet you and welcome you. If you've been here before and you're still talking, this is a good time to start listening. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, my name's Mark Mullery. I get to serve as one of the pastors and elders here. And um, Julie, come on up. And we are um, going to get a chance to hear from Julie Flanagan as we get started this morning. We've been in a series in... There you go. How about that? Man, you got a fan club. That's great. We've been in a series in Genesis. We're seeking to understand what it means to be a, a human being, what it means to be made in God's image. Who am I? And uh, Julie's been a longtime member of our church. Some of you may have had a chance to hear some of her story. She uh, shared as we had a, a RGCU class uh, doing a book study in the, in the book Embodied. She shared her story there, and she has in other, other places as well. And I've been so appreciative of your transparency and your... Um, your love for Jesus and desire to follow him. So Julie's going to just share a little bit about her own journey with the Lord. Good morning, everyone. It's a pleasure to be with you. So where do you go when you, in order to gain an understanding of who you are? What do you do when a part of you thinks that it knows who you are? And that, that part tells you that it knows the only path where you will be able to express the real you your inmost self, that this is the only path where you'll be really known, really loved. This is the only path that leads to full fulfillment. But then there's this other part of you that hesitates because it senses there's something wrong with that path. That something dangerous and, and even sinister lies down that path. Don't go there. But the pull is so strong, so irresistible that it feels inevitable. Well, this is where I found myself as a, a young Christian. When I gave my life to Christ at the age of 17, I was already bound up in sexual fantasies about women. I was already wanting to meet a woman who I could reveal that part of my life to, hoping that she might fall in love with me and we could be together. But there was also something in my soul that knew this path led down to a dark and a dangerous place a destructive place. And becoming a Christian was not a sudden release from my already established pattern of sexualizing the friendships I formed with women. It was instead the start of an all-out war. The war was in my soul over how I would see myself. Who would I bow to when it came to accepting answers about who I am, my identity? Would I bow to my own desires or would I bow to Jesus? As a young believer, I was afraid to tell anyone about my struggles with same-sex attraction. I was shy and introverted, and um, same-sex attraction just wasn't something that my church talked about, at least not in any way that was helpful. As I continued to read God's word, I was drawn more and more to this person of Jesus, and I learned more about Jesus as God and as my creator. I had an innate understanding, even as a child, that God is the creator of all. God created beautiful things, huge trees, little tiny wildflowers. He created mountains. He made vast forests and beautiful streams. I reasoned accurately 
that if what God makes is beautiful, then God is beautiful and the source of all beauty. I found beauty to be a trustworthy basis for my understanding of God as good. And then the Bible's assertion that a good God is my creator provided the foundation from which I could understand who I am and how I am to live. At the same time that this spiritual understanding was growing, my desires for a for woman continued to pull at me very strongly. I failed often in my thoughts, and I often felt alone. Over the years, even as I pursued Christ, I entered into two sexual relationships with women. And after that second relationship broke to pieces, I fell apart. I felt utterly lost, and a friend suggested I seek help through a Christian ministry specifically designed to help believers experiencing sexual brokenness. And it was through these types of ministries that I met other women battling with same-sex attraction who were walking with Christ, and they encouraged me to have a mentor, a mature, Christ-centered Christian. Jane Sand became that person for me. Jane had a gift of hospitality in the way that author Cornelius Plantinga writes about when he, he wrote, hospitality means to make room for others and then help them flourish in the room that you've made. Hospitality means to make room for others and then help them flourish in the room that you've made. This is what Jane did for me. She made room for me in her heart. She patiently helped me wrestle with God. There were times when she just listened and times when she helped me work my mind and my heart back to the truth. And she gave me hugs, lots of wonderful, strong hugs that helped me understand how I could experience both receive and give pure affection. Jane became someone I knew I could go to any time with any subject, any question, and she would listen to me and love me. I opened up to her about things I was ashamed of and things that I feared. I would often go, often go to her um, when I started forming a new friendship with a woman and ask for accountability. Being honest and open many times was just the only thing that I needed in order to break that cycle of sexualizing these relationships. Jane helped me learn how to love and be loved by another woman. And I'd like to wrap up by just sharing a scripture from Psalm 31, um, which God has used to help me express my gratitude for him, for all the good that he's brought to my life. It says, I will rejoice and be glad in your love, for you saw my affliction and you knew the anguish of my soul. You've not handed me over to the enemy, but have set my feet in a spacious place. Thank you all. Well done. Thank you. Thanks, Julie. That was great. Thank you so much. The God who revealed himself in his beauty to Julie and is conforming her to the image of his beloved son is the God who speaks to us in his word and is 
calling all of us and welcoming all of us into that same covenant relationship with him. And that's what we're looking at in our series in Genesis. We're looking at our origins, seeking to understand because we live in a fallen world, a broken world, uh, a, a world gone wrong, a world ruined by sin, we're seeking to understand from the beginning who did God design us to be? And in light of that, how are we to live receiving redemption and restoration through Jesus. So this morning, we're going to review uh, uh, a scripture from Genesis, and we're going to look at a couple other scriptures as, as well. So let's, let's start there. So Genesis 1, 26 and 27 is where we'll start. Hear God's word to us. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them ha- have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now we're going to skip forward to Matthew 19. This is Jesus You'll see him interacting with Pharisees. And when he's asked a question about divorce, he goes right back to the passage in Genesis 2 that we looked at two weeks ago, and he quotes it and applies it. The Pharisees Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And then one more, one of Jesus' best known disciples, Peter, writes these words in 1 Peter 3, 15 to 17. In your hearts, Honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil." Let's pray. Oh God, your word says that where there is no vision, the people perish. But blessed is the one who keeps your law. Lord, we live in a world that has lost its way, disconnected itself from your vision, from the revelation of who you are. But you have revealed yourself in Christ and in the word and promised a blessed life for those who live by your words. As we have heard your words this morning, open our eyes to understand them and to apply them in this world in which we live now. In Jesus' name, amen. We live in a time when views about gender and sexuality are undergoing rapid change. So we're going to talk about that today. I want to just give you an example. I have a dictionary in my office that's the Oxford English Dictionary. 
It's the gold standard for the English language. This dictionary has 2,400 pages. It was copyrighted in 1989. Here's a picture of one of those pages. I know it's hard to read, but I'll tell you what these words are. These are tiny little pages, so it's nine volumes can be compacted into one volume. And so it's got everything that's out there is, is in here. And this, this entry goes from transfusive to transgenosis. Good words if you're playing Scrabble. But what's missing? What's missing is the word transgender. 1989, the gold standard for the English language had no entry for the word transgender. It was not a word to include at the time. But here we are, 33 years later, and the LGBTQ plus community has become mainstream in the world that we live in. I highlight this just to highlight how rapidly change is occurring in the world in which we live. How do we live as followers of Christ in the midst of such rapid change? Well, in brief, we need a biblical anthropology. We need to understand what it means to be a human being from God's perspective. We need to understand God's design for human beings so that we can live in a particular way, so that we can live as a compassionate and courageous church. That's what, what this, this sermon and this series is, is all about. So we've been going through Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, seeking to understand our origins as human beings, what God intended what's gone wrong, and what Jesus comes to restore. So today's message is message number four out of eight in this series. And if you haven't heard the previous messages, I want to encourage you to go back. Our sermons are actually available on podcasts now, so you can go back and find them there as well as on our website. I want to encourage you to them. But I also want to say this message is going to be a little different than the sermons that we usually give here because we need to do a little bit of work this morning to, to really locate where we are in our culture and, and, and then bring God's word to, to be applied there. So here's the map for what I'm doing this morning. First, we want to understand what's happening in our culture's understanding of gender and sexuality and why that's happening. Second, we want to understand God's design for these things. And then third, we want to respond by being a church that is both courageous and compassionate. Now, there's a lot more than I wanted to, 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 to cover that I'm able to do here this morning. And so uh, I'll, I'll have some follow-up uh, uh, to this in the midweek musing this coming week. But first, let's try to locate ourselves. Where are we? I want to go back to 2015, seven years ago. In 2015, I think something happened, in my opinion, that was a cultural tipping point. And that is this. Bruce Jenner, who was the Olympic gold medal winner of the decathlon, changed his name to Caitlin. And at that point, transitioned to identifying as a female. That became uh, sort of a media sensation, and it got a lot of people's attention. In that same year, in 2015, the United States Supreme Court ruled that same-sex couples have the same right to marry as opposite-sex couples. That was a big change. Since then, we've also seen the normalizing of transgender identities just in becoming mainstream and part of the culture. And so, again, I just want to say the pace of change has been astonishing. Nobody predicted 
these changes at, at, at this rate. Ideas and behaviors that just a few decades ago, your grandparents, your parents, would have understood to be outside the bounds of, of common and socially acceptable behavior. Behaviors that were illegal and generally considered dishonorable have now become mainstream and ascendant in the culture. Now, this creates a bit of a divide in this room and in the culture, because if you were born after 1989, just to take that, that as an example, this may all seem like old news. But you may be having a hard time reconciling the religion that you were taught by your parents or that's being taught here with the world that you live in. You may find significant dissonance in that. On the other hand, if you were born after 1989, you may find these changes to be, well, you may find yourself angry or fearful. You may find yourself experiencing a, a sense of disgust about what's happening or asking if it's okay to just be confused because you can't figure out what's going on. However you feel about where we are today, whatever your experience is, it's important that we try to understand the world that we live in and how we got here. We are missionaries in our world. We need to understand the world that we live in. So let's try to think a little bit about how we got where we are right now as a culture. And at this point, I want to acknowledge Carl Truman and his book, Strange New World. At the end of the outline are a few books that uh, I'm recommending that, that we found helpful on, on these topics. But he's been a little bit like Francis Schaeffer was in the last century, just a helpful cultural commentator uh, in, in narrating and explaining what's going on. And he gives an illustration that I found very helpful. 200 years ago, if a man went to a doctor and said, I feel like I'm a woman trapped in a man's body, the doctor would say, that's a problem. So we need to help your mind conform to your body. But now, if a man goes to a doctor and says he feels like a woman trapped in a man's body, the doctor is going to say, that's a problem. And we need to help your body conform to your mind. That's a significant change in anthropology and how we think about what it means to be a human being. How did this change come about? One explanation that I find compelling is this. There's been a rise of what some have called expressive individualism in our culture. The rise of what others have called the sovereign self. Slogan captured in you do you. So the idea here is that each person should be free to discover who they truly are and to pursue whatever makes them truly happy. So this means, this is significant, because what this means is to live a good and fulfilling life, where do you look? You look inside yourself. That's the guide. So identity then becomes determined by this inner sense of self rather than by your nation or your family or your religion, or something else that's outside of you. Again, this is a significant change in the way people think about themselves. That inner self then not only becomes the source of one's identity and, and the source of authority in your life, it's also been sexualized. The sexual revolution has resulted 
in the sexualizing of this, this inner sense of self so that for many now it becomes inconceivable to have a good life without being able to gratify one's sexual desires, those desires that are functioning in that inner self. Now, there's truth in all that we're talking about here and all that we're seeing happening, but it sometimes in some places goes too far. For example, we do have an inner sense of self. Just listen to the psalmist say, why are you cast down, O my soul, for an example. But that inner sense of self, as we see it unpacked for us and revealed in scripture, is intended to look up to God, not only in on itself. So the self becomes now the end rather than a means to an end. So what's happening here is new, but it's also old. It's actually Genesis 3 being played out all over again. Genesis 3 will be the sermon next week. But I want to go back to this Two Ways to Live booklet that I highlighted a couple weeks ago. I've been going through this in the, the RGCU class. It's just a nice little uh, set of pictures to describe uh, sort of uh, life in God's world, the, the, the gospel, fall, and, and, and redemption. So here's, here's how it works. In the garden, Genesis 1 and 2, as we saw a couple weeks ago, God creates human beings in his image to live under his authority. That's that crown there. And by his word, he speaks to them and tells them how to live. The significant moment in human history happens, as we'll see next week in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve step out from under that authority and take that crown for themselves. And they say, no, we're going to be our own authority. We're going to reject your authority and we'll take that authority for ourselves. And what happens then is the image of God isn't completely destroyed in people, but it's corrupted and twisted. It's like a really warped board. You can still see that it's a board, but you can't do anything with it. It's not as useful as it used to be. That's the situation that we find ourselves in right now. This is the world that we live in. It's a fallen world. So Jesus comes into that world on a mission of rescue and redemption. And notably, Jesus comes in to live in that world as a human being, as a second Adam. He comes, Colossians 1.15 says, as the image, hear that word, the image of the invisible God. So as Adam and Eve were created in God's image, the Son of God takes on humanity to come in the image of God to make a way for lost people to be rescued and found. Now, that connects with all of our lives, including our experience of gender and sexuality. So now let's shift and let's talk a little bit about what is God's design for gender and sexuality. Living in this world of expressive individualism, how do we live? What is God's design for us? So I want to just offer a few terms that may be familiar, may be a little bit familiar, maybe un unknown, but they're important terms for us to understand if we're going to understand our place in the world today. So the first term, and these are on your, your handout, the first term is sex, by which I mean a biological description of whether you're male or female. Very rarely intersex would be someone born that way. This term, and this is important, that's why I'm bringing this up, today, we need to understand if it's not clear, this term used to be synonymous for gender, but it's not anymore. 
The way people think in our culture about sex and gender is changing, and so the next term is important. Gender identity, what's that? Gender identity is a person's inner sense of their gender, whether male or female or both or neither. And I want you to see then that what, what's happening is, as in, in this way of thinking is that one's gender identity is disconnected from one's biology. Okay, so that's what's, what's, uh, what's happening in the world that we live in. Gender roles, what's that all about? Well, gender roles are those social codes and practices that differentiate male and female in a particular culture. For example, in our culture, it's sometimes or commonly, you know, boys should be dressed in blue and girls in pink. But there are other cultures where girls might be dressed in blue and boys might be dressed in pink. Those are cultural codes and cultural signals that differentiate male from female in a particular culture. Now, gender dysphoria is the last one that I want to mention here. Gender dysphoria, this is a really important term, and it's really important that, that if, if this is unfamiliar to you, that, that you, you grasp this. It's a psychological term. It's a term that describes something that goes on inside of you. And it's a term for the distress, the tension, the angst, the difficulty that uh, some people feel when their internal sense of self doesn't match with their biological sex. That sense of, I feel like I'm born in the wrong body. I feel like I'm a woman in a man's body or a man in a woman's body. And we want to acknowledge this is a genuine experience that many people have that's real suffering and that's been really hard to talk about in church. And we want to be a church where it's okay to talk about these kinds of things because this is real. This is happening. And there are people right here, right now who are experiencing these things and maybe even saying, I hope I can be able to talk about these things in the context of this congregation. So what is it about gender and sexuality that Jesus comes to restore? Well, let's, let's walk through four things. First this, Jesus comes as a human being in a human body. Don't run too quickly past that. He comes in a human body, the second Adam, and he comes and lives under God's authority. Remember how Adam and Eve, they moved out from under God's authority and they became their own authority? Jesus comes and he moves back under God's authority. He lives by God's word. Now, this is a crucial moment for each one here. Here's the question. Who can define for you what's right and wrong? Who gets to do that in your life? Because that person has ultimate authority in your life. The culture says you do this for yourself. The culture says you have the authority to define for yourself what's right and wrong. But Jesus comes and he does not say that. He says something else. In the Garden of Gethsemane, in the moment of greatest pressure in his life, he prays, my father, not as I will, but as you will. Can you see what he's doing? He's functioning under the father's authority. Second, we see that Jesus anchors his identity not by looking inside himself as an end in itself, but by looking up to God. John 5, 19 the son, speaking of himself, can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. 
He's looking to the Father to define who he is and how he's to live. And then he turns to his disciples and he says, you guys do the same thing. John 15, 5, he says, I'm the vine and you're the branches. Branches have to be connected to the vine, right? Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit for, hear this, apart from me, you can do nothing. We cannot live autonomously. We cannot live and thrive and flourish separating ourselves from God's authority, from God's word, and from God's Christ, Jesus, the Redeemer. So who am I, Julie asked at the beginning of her story. Well, the answer that we're getting from Genesis and what we see Jesus living out is this. I'm a human being, male or female, made in God's image and being remade. We're all a a restoration project. We're all a work of remodeling uh, ongoing. Romans 8, 29 says, those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image. Hear that word? There it is again. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. So Jesus has come to restore our ability to live under God's authority and to find our identity in being made in his image. Third, I want you to notice then that Jesus builds on and reaffirms our origins as found in Genesis 1 and 2. He doesn't create a new way of thinking about what it means to be a human being. He goes back to the beginning. That's why I read that Matthew 19 passage there. He's asked about uh, divorce and he goes right back and and cites chapter 1 of Genesis and quotes chapter 2. He's reaffirming what we talked about two weeks ago and what we've seen about gender and sexuality and marriage. This is important. Jesus' life and Jesus' teaching reveal that gender aligns with biological sex. So gender isn't a social construct and it isn't determined by one's inner sense of self as real and powerful as that may be. Jesus never encourages or affirms any kind of homosexual practice, any non-binary expression of gender, or any kind of marriage other than marriage between one man and one woman. Jesus builds on and reaffirms our origins as found in Genesis 1 and 2. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female. These are Jesus' words to us. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Fourth, Jesus comes into our broken world on a mission of restoration. Remember, the image of God was broken in Jesus' time, too. Right? There was no fault divorce. The reason he's being asked this question is because there was no fault divorce in that society, but it was for men only. And in that world, you can read the Gospels and discover there was all kinds of ethnic pride and racial arrogance going on. And all kinds of sex occurring outside of marriage. Things weren't 
that different then than they are now. And he comes to start this restoration project in lives of, with, of people like us that will be fulfilled in this new creation. And this is really good news because we're all messed up. The world is messed up and we're messed up parts of it. And so if you're finding that your inner sense of self is out of step with your biological sex, if you experience that gender dysphoria, Jesus says, come to me and I'll give you rest. If you find that you have desires for sexual relationships with people of the same sex, as Julie was transparent enough to talk about with us this morning, or people that you're not married to, if you find that you don't fit the stereotypes that culture sets for masculinity and femininity, wherever you find yourself struggling in the world that you live in today, Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. There can be lots of struggling and groaning in this world. But Jesus promises to be with you for every breath and every groan and every step until we're with him, until he returns and there's a new creation and we, we receive these wonderful new bodies that we talked about last week and get to be with him in this new creation. Now, let's summarize then. God's design for gender and sexuality is this. Your body matters. Your body matters. It was given to you by God and God picked whether you have a male or a female body. It's God's intention for you to align your gender identity with the biological sex of your body. And he's empowering you by the Holy Spirit for that to happen. As Julie said, things didn't change for her overnight. They don't change for any of us overnight. This is a process and a project and a walk that we walk out over time with the Lord and in the context of community. But your body matters and God wants to align your inner sense of self with your biological sex of your body. Second, we also want to say your body and your biological sex are given to you by God and they're intended to be received as good gifts. These are good things from this beautiful God that Julie talked to us about. Sam Albury in the book Transgender, one of the books that I mentioned at the end, says this. He says, our culture says your psychology is your sexual identity. So let your body be conformed to it. The Bible says your body is your sexual identity. Let your mind be conformed to it. And we see a wonderful connection of that in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice and don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind, okay? So your body and your biological sex are given to you by God and they're intended to be wonderful and good gifts. And God wants to bring this alignment between your inner sense of who you are and, and, and your body. We also want to say that marriage is designed by God to be a union, not of two people of the same sex, but one man and one woman, different and complementary in a beautiful way. This is so important that God makes marriage a picture to the world of the love Christ has for his church. A groom and a bride, different but complementary. The last thing I want to say 
in summarizing, God's design is this. Let me just slow down. Let's think about who God is. Are these a list of arbitrary rules from a mean God who just likes to flash his authority by making people do things randomly? No. When we talk about gender and sexuality and marriage and identity, these are part of a beautiful design from the creator of beauty. And when we live in the good of these things, human flourishing, human society that that becomes fruitful and joyful and abundant in life, that's what can come about. Jesus promises, I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly. But that abundant life doesn't come when we step outside and away from his authority. It's renewed and restored and repaired when we come under his redeeming, saving authority and power by his word and through the spirit. Now this all affects how we want to live together as a church. 1 Peter 3.15 is such a wonderful guide for us. He says, when, you in, when you're going through your lives as Christians, even though you're in a culture where you feel like aliens and exiles, he says, when you get a chance to talk about who you are and engage people from the culture, do it with gentleness and respect. He's talking about hearts that have been transformed to become compassionate hearts. And we want to be a church that's both compassionate and courageous as we live in the world that we live in. Let's think about compassion first and then we'll talk about courage second. Life in a broken world can't, can be hard, can it? You can say, yes, it can be. Life in a broken world can be really hard, can't it? It's hard even for the most sincere Christian, isn't it? So we need each other. Right? We band together as Christians, and when we do that, we, and not just our church, but when we collectively as Christians, churches all around the world, when, when we band together as Christians, we create an alternative culture to the world that we live in. And it's a culture of hope and love and life. And we want to pour out compassion on those in our midst who are struggling with gender dysphoria or same-sex attraction or wondering, who am I? Julie, I'm so thankful that you would tell your story to the church. And I hope, amen, that's appropriate. Okay, but now it's your turn. Because we want to be a church of Julie's. We want to be a church of people who are willing to open up about our lives and walk in the light with one another about our struggles. That's the only way we're going to receive help and grace is if we're willing to walk in the light and band together in that kind of fellowship. So let us be a church of Julie's. I was thinking about this this week. The first time I walked into a church... I was a mess, capital M. I was a liar. I was a slave to sexual sin. 
I was descending into alcohol and drug abuse. I was disobedient to my parents. I was probably breaking all 10 of the commandments at different points in my teenage years. But you know what? When I walked into church, that wasn't obvious from my outward appearance because some men's sins are obvious and others trail behind them. But whatever our mess is, whether it's obvious on the outside or it takes a while for it to be disclosed, we want to be a church where it's safe to open up because you know what? We're all a bundle of disordered desires. And we're all trying to figure out which of these desires that I have inside me are ones that I listen to and, and, and respond to and ones that, that are disordered that I reject and cannot respond to. We're all trying to sort that out in our lives. And we want to be the kind of church where we can talk about these things with one another. And this compassion that we want to bring to one another, which we can bring having been redeemed by the great love of our great Savior through no merit of our own, this compassion we not only want to bring to each other, we want to bring it out into the world. Sadly, the way Christians have spoken to and treated gay and trans people has too often been hurtful, mean, and judgmental. And so Peter says, hey, church, when you're talking to people, do it with gentleness and respect. That's how Jesus relates to us, isn't it? I love the quote in Preston Sprinkle's book, Embodied, the third of the books in your bibliography. He says, we can get the Bible right, but if we get love wrong, we're wrong. If we don't have love, we're a clanging gong. First Corinthians 13. And as I look around here, there is so much to encourage. There is so much compassion. There is so much gentleness and so much respect, not only within, but extending from us outside. May it continue and may it increase by the power of the Spirit. Let us be, let us continue to be, let us increasingly be a compassionate church. And second, let us be a courageous church. In your hearts, Peter writes, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Why does he say that? Because when you don't fit in the culture, it's easy to assimilate and be pressured and have that, that, that sense of if I, just, if I just conform enough to the culture, then I won't be hassled and I don't want to stand out. But he says, no, that won't do. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Have a good conscience, even if they revile your good behavior because sometimes what God considers good behavior a culture considers behavior to be punished and rejected that was happening in the first century it's hard to swim upstream isn't it it's hard to sort your way through difficult things that come up in in life diversity and equity inclusivity training can sometimes create uncomfortable moments in the workplace or at school what to do with pronouns what to do with wedding invitations to same-sex weddings. And buckle up because those are just the beginning of the challenges. There's more to come. I don't know what they're going to be. Beloved, God has designed the church to be the pillar and buttress of the, church, of the truth. God has designed the church to be a city set on a hill. God has designed the church to be the place where his word is preached the whole counsel of his word, not shying away from anything 
no matter how out of step it might be with the culture. And with that, let me just pause for a moment and say, I have planned for and long anticipated this sermon and it's been a joy to work collectively with not only the, 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 the pastors and elders, but to work collectively with so many of you. But never once have I been worried that if I got up and talked about these things here this morning, that I might jeopardize my job. Never once has that even been a thought to me. And yet there are many pastors for whom that would be a real consideration. And I say that to say, thank you for being a church that prizes and honors and values the whole counsel of God. I love that about you. And I want to be a part of a church like that. Thank you. Fear not. If biblical Christianity becomes increasingly marginalized, and the reality is we are living in a time where biblical Christianity, it just seems in the culture increasingly strange or even dangerous and a threat to be removed. If that continues, and we don't know, it might continue, it might not, I don't know. But we can go back to the early church, the first and second century Christians. They knew they were exiles and aliens. They knew they didn't fit in their culture and they were willing to suffer to follow Jesus because that's how Jesus lived and they knew this isn't our home. We're not home yet. The best is yet to come. So let's press in to build a healthy church that can not only weather all storms, but brothers and sisters, Let's band together to build a healthy church that endures for generations. Let's do it for your kids and your grandkids. Let's look up to find our identity and our strength and our hope in our saving God. And let's look out and reach out to refugees from the sexual revolution because they're going to need shelter from the storm just like we do. And if you are here this morning and you find yourself in a place of need, looking for help. Julie doesn't know I'm volunteering her to do this right now, but she would be glad to talk to you about this. Maybe you have a trusted friend who can be a Jane to you, like Jane became for Julie. I'd be glad to talk with you about anything. Any of the elders would be glad to talk with you. You may have another trusted friend in the room that would be glad to talk with you. Don't struggle and suffer alone. Okay, we're going to transition to the Lord's Supper. If you need to grab the elements, go ahead. As we do that, if you need them, they're downstairs and the table's upstairs available as well. As we do that, I want to bring us to the Heidelberg Catechism question and answer number one, just the first part. Here's the question. O Redeeming Grace Church, brothers and sisters, what is your only comfort in life and in death? Thank you. I didn't know you were going to do that, but that was awesome. <laughs> Let's do it again. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. There is hope, 
and there is comfort. And that's what we're remembering now as we take the Lord's Supper. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're welcome to participate in this, whether you're a member of this church or not. If you're not following Jesus, this is a family meal for those who've come to follow him. I want to encourage you not to take this little meal, but I want to encourage you to think about and pray about and consider who are you and where are you with Jesus? All right, let's take this little wafer. It's symbolic of Jesus's body. Let's remember that his body was broken so that yours could be redeemed and you could belong to him body and soul in life and in death. Take and eat. The cup represents his blood shed to make an eternal, unbreakable, everlasting covenant with him in life and in death and in resurrection forever. Drink in the name of Jesus Christ. We should stand and sing. Let's do that. <laughs> 